Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In the last episode, I played two audio pieces from fellows who took part in my audio class for the Monterey Summer Symposium on Russia. So in this episode, I'm going to play you the final two. So first up is A Brief Conversation on Biculturalism by Alexandra Duke. Alexandra is an MPhil candidate in Russian and East European Studies at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Her research focuses on the role of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, in diaspora communities in Britain, and the way in which the Church fulfills different roles in the formation of political identity outside of the Russian state. Alexandra is also the managing editor of the St. Anthony's International Review, the only peer-reviewed international affairs journal at Oxford. So here's Alexander Duke's A Brief Conversation on Biculturalism. thinking of topics that I could choose for this audio project, I began thinking of big questions that concern those interested in Russian affairs today. Nuclear non-proliferation, cybersecurity, the ever-deteriorating relations between Russia and the West, etc. Then I realized that what got me interested in studying the Russian world and the post-Soviet world more broadly was my own Russian background. All of my family that we know of are Russian, and though I was born and grew up in the States, I have always wrestled with a kind of in-betweenism. Many of the values that my family passed on to me are different from those that I see around me in the American world, and yet I'm too westernized to truly fit into the Russian world. Though it may not be as dramatic a topic as nuclear Armageddon, biculturalism is still the driving force that keeps me interested in learning more and diving deeper into Russia. It's a force that compels me from my heart and not simply from my mind, which I'd say makes it worth exploring for the next 10 minutes or so. I conducted interviews with two people who similarly share this in-between identity, although albeit in different ways. I asked them questions that always burned in my mind, such as, do you feel that you fit into your two cultures equally, one more than the other, or neither? And did you ever feel envious of your full-fledged American friends? Through talking to both of my interviewees, I learned a lot about how they both conceived of biculturalism as playing a role in their lives, and I also learned a lot about my own conceptions of identity. I started talking to my friend Tina Magla Khalidzi, who was born in Moscow and moved to New Jersey with her family when she was three, 
about the little ways in which we both felt weird growing up, and when we began to realize that we were a bit different from our 100% American friends. So I don't think that the realization really dawned on me in, in a single moment. I think it's just a series of moments that continuously pile up, uh, starting with maybe bringing a lunch that smelled uh, to school, that smelled a little bit different than my friends, whatever they brought. Um, and, you know, I, I tried, there are moments when you try to assimilate and you ask your parents, well, you know, maybe you could pack me peanut butter and jelly sandwich tomorrow. And, uh, you know, um, but but you still you still feel that, yeah, you are kind of different from, from your 100% American friends. Um, you use the word upbringing here, which is interesting because, you know, in Russian, upbringing, воспитание, means something completely different. And even when I say that word, it, it conjures so many different feelings than I feel like upbringing even does. We then started talking about how this difference encompassed not just our own selves, but indeed the whole family unit that our American world would interact with. I, for one, remember how frustrated my mom would get when I was growing up that she couldn't even take one quick trip to the grocery store without somebody saying, Oh my gosh, where's your accent from? It's so interesting. Or how it always felt normal for me to have to proofread and then spiff up any formal correspondence of hers to lawyers, to school principals, really to anyone who might turn up their nose at any version of written English that was a shade off from perfect. To Tina and I, the multiculturalism of our families was what made them beautiful and complex and fascinating. But to others who only heard accents and cultural inconsistencies, it probably painted a different picture. And this is something that we both always found difficult. This is me. I love I love my background and I'm going to use it when I can. That, that, I, that's just part of me. But one thing to this day, well, I'm 21 years old, I still think about this and how, and it makes me upset. And I think it is one of the drawbacks of, of coming from an immigrant family is that, I, at least for my family, I always feel like even when people meet my parents, they're not going to have um, the same, they're not going to know them as well as I do because of that language barrier, maybe, or just in general, they kind of, the, their English selves, their selves that they portray in English, and, and then the, self, the people that I know in Russian, the people that I grew up with, are, no matter how much they try, are really two different people. I, it all kind of feels like. And it's sad because I have all these American friends, let's say, that I, I, I want to know the people that I respect, but I know that they're really not going to really deeply know each other. Um, because of that language barrier, because of the, that cultural difference, maybe. In my second interview with Anna Maria Mustiada, one of the coordinators of the 2020 Monterey Summer Symposium on Russia, we talked a lot about themes of values and ideas that come from being bicultural, and how the balance of values and ideas that one holds on to from multiple cultures can be very beneficial. They allow you to expand your horizons of ideas while also forcing you to look deeper into yourself and question ideas of who you are. For Anna Maria, it was the untethered free speech and free thinking that she encountered upon moving to the U.S. from Romania and Moldova, where she grew up, that left a great impression on her. When I moved to the United States, this cultural shock, everyone goes through it. But the fact that I was already 20 when I first came here and my personality was already formed, for me at that point, it was very hard to experience different kinds of behavior to understand do I even fit here? But for example, 
I do hold on to the free thinking and the innovation aspect of the American culture. In Moldovan culture or Eastern European culture, if you're not supposed to say something, you're usually keeping it for yourself, right? You don't share that with people. Here, however, you're encouraged to like, oh, even if it's a crazy idea, go ahead, say it. What if this is a great idea that comes at the end and so on? So I value that it, regardless of the idea, just put it out there. Maybe it's a wonderful one. So here, you are allowed, or not allowed, you are let on your own to progress at your own speed. So as long as you know the value of your potential and you know what you want to do, you'll succeed in whatever that is. In Eastern European culture, there's not that much advocacy for the value of potential. There's, you know, there's more emphasis put on where do you come from and what kind of education you have and who are your parents and grandparents and what kind of family you come from. I value and cling onto the hard European values, like family, like being around on the table and sharing food, and cling to the American values when it comes to the free flow of information and just speaking freely. Though Anna Maria, Tina, and I have all had very different experiences with biculturalism, and we've all formed our unique identities based on the elements of all of our upbringings, we all engage in a form of balancing every day. Fundamentally, we are all trying to answer the question of how do we best represent the mix of cultures that we hold within us? Maybe some or all of us will go back to the countries where we or our families come from and attempt to create some sort of seamless blended identity. Maybe instead we'll find a way to hold on to these cultures and these values from a completely different location and personal context. But no matter what we all do, we will be stuck in a very exciting, slightly confusing, and ever-changing state of in-between. That was a brief conversation on biculturalism by Alexandra Duke. Next up is remembering the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz mission, 45 years of U.S.-Russian space cooperation by Lisa Becker. Lisa Becker is from Germany and a graduate of the Science Po MGIMO double degree program in international security. Her academic interests include Russian foreign policy, U.S.-EU-Russian relations, European security, NATO, and space. She is currently completing the Blue Book traineeship program at the European Commission. So here's remembering the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz mission, 45 years of U.S.-Russian space cooperation by Lisa Becker. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode. My name is Lisa, and I'm a fellow of the 2020 Monterey Summer Symposium on Russia. I'm recording this episode on July 17th, and I'm mentioning this because this date is of great significance for U.S.-Russian relations. Let me take you back to the year 1975. It was the heat of the Cold War, which saw the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in a dangerous arms race on Earth. 
so it is hard to imagine what happened at the same time up in space. Mid-July 1975, an American Apollo spacecraft and a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft prepare to join in Earth orbit, 140 miles above the Atlantic near Portugal. During their two-day joint flight, astronauts and cosmonauts transferred between spacecraft. They conducted space experiments, and they tested a compatible rendezvous and docking system. The mission climaxed more than three years of planning and preparation, a time during which differences in language, in technology, in political creed were set aside. Less than five meters distance. The 45-year anniversary of the Apollo-Soyuz docking felt like a good opportunity to revisit the topic of U.S.-Soviet space cooperation and to demystify the history of the joint mission. Contact. Capture. For this, I had the incredible honor to interview three leading experts in this field. First, you'll hear Dr. Kathleen Lewis, the curator of the Space Race Exhibition at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Then you'll hear Dr. Louis Friedman, co-founder and executive director emeritus of the Planetary Society, as well as academician Roald Zukdeev, who, in his capacity as a director of the Space Research Institute of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, led the Soviet efforts for the Apollo-Soyuz test project. May our joint work in space serve for the benefit of all countries and peoples on the Earth. I have to admit, I found it quite fascinating that this joint undertaking came to fruition in the first place. So I wanted to investigate this period of U.S.-Soviet relations further. For this, I sat down with Dr. Lewis to talk about the Cold War and the space race. The overall climate was changing in some ways. One aspect of the space race, the moon race, had been resolved in 1969, when the crew of Apollo 11 stepped foot on the moon, there were two competing views of how the United States relationship with the USSR should be conducted. You have, on one hand, Kissinger and Nixon encouraging them towards detente. And on the other hand, you have this growing feeling in Congress that they should punish them and prohibiting them from participating in global activities. Both the USSR and the United States had lost astronauts in programs in 1967, which was a very bad year. In January, the Americans lost three astronauts in the Apollo 1 fire. In April of that year, the USSR lost a cosmonaut on the Soyuz 1 flight. So there was an international outcry to find a way to protect cosmonauts and astronauts. The thaw and the shared loss opened up a window of opportunity that culminated in the joint mission. In the three years running up to the actual docking, both sides worked hard to make the technology work. How this looked in detail is something I discussed with Dr. Roald Zagdeev, who shared his memories of his own work within the Space Research Institute. I was appointed as the director of Space Research Institute in 1973. A few months after that 1972 meeting between Nixon and Brezhnev, assigning both NASA and uh, Soviet side to prepare that mission. 
his Space Research Institute had a central role to play. There was important work going on to develop electromechanics of docking between two systems. These clutches were tested many, many times in the vacuum, chamber, everything. And uh, I think it worked perfectly uh, when it was in space. Making the technology work was half the rent. Apart from the differences in language and culture, the way the Soviets and the Americans operated was fundamentally different. NASA, as a civilian organization, was working quite openly. This was not the case for the Soviet side. There was a huge iceberg in Soviet space program, completely secret. It included hundreds of thousands of workers, engineers, huge number of state-owned companies. Everything was classified. It was very difficult to separate military and civilian parts. Suddenly, they had to open the doors of some of these facilities. It happened that my little institute, which is a small part inside the huge iceberg, we were said that you would be responsible to say that you are in control in order to avoid American engineers and experts to enter deep inside the Soviet space enterprises. All the Americans who were visiting Russia as a part of this joint working group, I'm sure they knew everything. But it was like a masquerade, you know. Okay, so if it was protocol, let's do it. And yet, despite those difficulties, the two capsules docked successfully on July 17, 1975. And while people around the world were cheering at the idea that cosmonauts and astronauts were shaking hands above their heads, the scientific community did not necessarily share this enthusiasm. Most decisions in human spaceflight, they have very little to do with space. They have to do with the geopolitics. Dr. Louis Friedman told me, we talked about the link between politics and space during the Cold War, and I asked him about the scientific significance of the joint mission. So in essence, the Apollo-Soyuz program, it served both countries' interests, both from a foreign policy point of view and from the use of uh, their space industries. It was enormously symbolic, I mean, reaching out and touching each other and being able to exchange greetings. Now, in the scientific community, they, they're kind of cynical about that. That's all a stunt to them. That's not real science. They're not, you know, they're just doing things for propaganda. They're just doing things for show. Interestingly enough, this sentiment was echoed on the Soviet side too. Or as scientists said. This is a just, you know, PR event. We need something science can benefit. Early a year after the successful docking, NASA and the Soviet Academy of Science were already designing the next joint mission. Two working groups were convened that developed the idea of having an American shuttle docked with the Soviet station Salyut. Needless to say that, unfortunately, this project never materialized. Why that? Well, this is what I asked Dr. Roald Zagdeev, who you've heard earlier. I think uh, uh, everything became victim of Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. Scientists, of course, still kept the meeting at international conferences. So we always had a lot of ideas of what we can do jointly. Some of these things later on materialized. But then the problem was there was no framework agreement anymore. Despite the disruptions in the political realm, scientists continued to cooperate. Dr. Louis Friedman gave me an insight of what this meant, telling about his own first experience of working in the Soviet Union in an especially tense time. 
I was welcomed into my first visit in Russian space facilities, not only at the height of the Cold War, but the height of a particularly bad week. The week before the uh, Soviets had shot down the uh, Korean airliner, when I landed the first night and Dropoff was giving a speech, basically uh, answering Reagan's uh, evil empire speech. But the people I was working with, it was a completely different attitude. Politics was something beyond their control. But in terms of personal and technical work that we were involved in, it was always very constructive and very positive. I had people coming up to me that, you know, oh, we haven't had anybody here since Apollo-Soyuz. That was such a wonderful time. The fond memories of cooperation during Apollo-Soyuz times highlight that there's more to the mission than just simple docking. The importance of its legacy is something that I touched upon in all three of the interviews. I think the greatest significance of this project was two nations were able to come together and that set a precedent showing that it could be done through great deal of planning and really laid the way for the International Space Station. In my opinion, the International Space Station deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. It started in the communist days, it worked post-Soviet days, it worked through the Yeltsin era, it's working in the Putin era. If we get in trouble, they help. If they get in trouble, we help. It's working. It's working remarkably well. It was eye-opening for everyone. We can cooperate. The Cold War space race is over. And yet, amidst debates on new actors, the creation of space forces, and hostile actions in orbit, space is resurfacing once again as a strategically important domain, not only for civilian use, but also for the military. So, what is the current state of play of spatial affairs? In spaceflight cooperation, there's still many space races going on. No country wants to cooperate and have a multinational effort on projects that are, pertain to national security. So you have smaller space races going on, and then you have this expectation that there will be cooperative ventures in cost sharing. Quite frankly, human spaceflight is so very expensive, and, and that was what pushed the International Space Station. It was originally conceived as an American space station, but it pushed it towards this cooperative venture And then finally, the third aspect that you have is this globalization of space. You have satellites that are manufactured in Asia, launched on behalf of, say, Spain, and they're launched from Kazakhstan on behalf of Russia, which is, is offering its launch services. U.S. government and Russian government have a kind of silent understanding that in space area, they need to cooperate. Space is a very natural area to cooperate. They are liberating these areas from sanction measures. And then, of course, uh, NASA astronauts, until last launch by Elon Musk, they were able to reach International Space Station only on Soviet launcher Soyuz. So uh, the question is, what's going to happen in a few years when NASA and the Department of Defense would decide, okay, now we don't need Russia. The outlook on U.S.-Russian space cooperation could admittedly look better, but maybe looking into the stars doesn't necessarily mean looking into the past, but the future. Even beyond Earth's orbit and the moon, there's a lot to be explored, together. 
Is it possible that very soon cosmonauts and astronauts will be landing on Mars, Dr. Friedman? Both countries have this Mars ambition. I attended meetings on humans going to Mars in the Soviet Union back in the 1980s. Even today, a Russian space official uh, gives a speech in which he says, we're aiming toward developing uh, human missions to Mars. And in the U.S. program, they talk about that being the long-range goal. But in point of fact, they have much more limited objectives. The U.S. has scaled back all their Mars objectives for a lunar objective. We can bring in Russian involvement in some of these uh, new considerations. The Mars program will continue. There's a lot of momentum behind it, and there's a lot of interest in it. But it needs a political purpose driven from both countries saying, we got to find something to do together. Then they'll find the Mars mission. It's, it can't be generated just because they want the group of people in the space programs want to go to Mars. With this, I will conclude this episode on the Policy Use Test Project. Forty-five years after the joint mission, U.S.-Russian cooperation in space has persisted and has gained new partners around the globe. If anything, the docking has shown that even in times of tense relations, the two parties can set aside their reservations and come together to cooperate in space. What the future holds is still uncertain, but space offers endless opportunities for exploration, starting with the Moon, Mars and beyond. I want to extend my gratitude to the three speakers that agreed to be interviewed for this episode, Professor Sean Guillory and the Montreux Summer Symposium on Russia Organizers. You will find references to the material used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That was remembering the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz mission, 45 years of U.S.-Russian space cooperation by Lisa Becker. I hope you enjoyed these audio pieces. I had a lot of fun teaching the students and watching them develop their projects. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. As always, thanks to all my patrons for their generous contributions every month to help this podcast keep going. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Diameter 4.9 miles, mass over 6,000 megatons, and speed of 1,750 miles per second. And destination, Earth.